From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Somil Trivedi, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU and your host for this episode. It's election season again, and in America, sadly, that means it's voter suppression season again. Starting in 2020, 49 states have proposed over 440 bills to make it harder for Americans to vote, and many of them have now passed. In 2021, state lawmakers started using the newly released census data to draw state maps that lock up their own political power, even at the expense of the rest of us. And now, in 2022, these tactics are almost certain to impact the midterm elections for Congress, as well as local and state elections across the country. Federal legislation that would have addressed these topics and reversed some of the Supreme Court's gut punches to the Voting Rights Act has stalled. And Republican lawmakers in at least eight states are trying to strip away power from secretaries of state, governors, and nonpartisan election boards over how elections are run and counted, effectively giving political operatives the power to cancel your vote. My guest today is lawyer Janae Nelson. She has spent her career battling these issues. At the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, where she currently serves as Associate Director Counsel and will soon take over as President and Director Counsel, she has overseen court challenges to racial and partisan gerrymandering, to overturn harsh voter ID laws, and to re-enfranchise folks who have lost their right to vote because of felony convictions. As a professor of law at St. John's, she's also taught classes on election law and political participation and has written extensively on the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act at the expense of communities of color. We're catching Janae at a heady time, just as she is ascending to the helm of one of the nation's foremost civil rights organizations, and just as those rights face threats we haven't seen in decades, if not centuries. She joins us today to talk about all of that and more. Janae, welcome to At Liberty. Thanks so much for having me. So in some personal news, as they say on Twitter, you're getting a new job. Uh, how do you feel? I, am. I feel elated. I am deeply, deeply honored to be able to helm an organization that I've loved for many decades and thrilled to be helming it at this particular moment where our country is at a crossroads and we have an opportunity to do some deep and transformative work. So before we get to the topic of the day, voting, let's talk about the Supreme Court and President Biden's pledge to name the first black female justice. You know, I actually want to avoid the sort of tired discussion of whether the nominee will be quote unquote qualified. You know, you can ask all the folks these women beat out in law school and college about that. <laughs> uh, instead, I want to focus on the encouraging trend that so many of these women have been advocates for marginalized people, public defenders, voting rights lawyers, et cetera. And this has actually been a trend amongst all of the president's judicial nominees, almost. Uh, As a black female civil rights lawyer yourself, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm extremely gratified that we have uh, more diversity likely to occur on the Supreme Court than we will ever have had in terms of gender, in terms of background. There is no question that there are (laughs) countless Black women who meet the qualifications to be a Supreme Court justice. And it really is going to be a matter of who is the right person for this moment. Um, And any number of them can bring much needed diversity of experience, of perspective, of professional background to the justices that presently serve on the court. 
I'm also excited to see the diversity that uh, President Biden has instigated in our appellate courts and in our district courts. Uh, he's appointed uh, and nominated more women and more women of color and more people of color of diverse backgrounds uh, than any president that that we've seen. And I think this uh, next appointment on the Supreme Court is going to be uh, incredibly inspiring to to many. I agree. And for those of us who happen to work in civil rights law, we know that only 60 to 80 cases actually end up at the Supreme Court. So these lower court nominations where most of our work happens uh, inspire a lot of hope for us, I think. That's right. I mean, well, even though the Supreme Court only only decides uh, an increasingly smaller number of cases, those cases, as we all know, hold such significant importance. They they become the proverbial law of the land. And we see the court deciding issues like reproductive rights, like access to higher education and um, and affirmative action and gun laws and so many other consequential issues, it is important that those who are digesting those facts, that are applying the law to those facts, bring a diversity of experiences and perspectives to that analysis. And, you know, while it won't change the balance between conservatives uh, and, and others on the court, it certainly will force the court to have to grapple with dimensions of these issues that it might not have otherwise. Exactly right. All right. Let's turn to voting rights or the lack thereof in America right now. Um, so you've been working on this for most of your career. How does the landscape for you compare with other chapters in the nation's history? What's sort of the same and what's different about this current slew of laws? So it's interesting. We always talk about, you know, old poisons and new bottles. And this is quite uh, similar in that regard. Voter suppression has been with us. Uh, since as long as we've been voting in this country, right? Uh, there was outright suppression of the vote by simply denying the right to vote to African-Americans and others until the passage of the 15th Amendment. And even then, Black women still couldn't vote until 1920 when all women got the right to vote. So the right to vote has been fraught uh, from the inception of our uh, so-called democracy. And we really didn't even become a democracy until we passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which finally allowed most individuals who were eligible to vote to vote. But what we've seen over the years is a narrowing of the tools that the Voting Rights Act provides. And in fact, you know, the absolute disabling of a tool in 2013 in the Shelby County case. And that was essentially an invitation for states to go rogue and uh, be much more blatant about their voter suppression and not have to worry about the consequences of the federal government screening their laws before they went into effect. So what we're seeing now is an, an onslaught of laws and a boldness on the state and local level that really did not exist prior to 2013 in this blatant form. But I would say the other thing that's significantly different is that there are overt efforts to engage in election subversion that have been introduced by the last president and his supporters. I think that's of a, of a different ilk than many of us are used to. Now that many communities of color who've been the targets of those voter suppression efforts have redoubled their efforts to turn out, have circumvented those suppression efforts, 
and are still voting in such large numbers that they were able to elect the candidate of their choice, now the effort has turned to overthrowing the results of those elections. And that is a precipitous descent for our country into authoritarianism, into the complete dissolution of our democracy. So we are in very, very perilous territory. And that is the aspect of voter suppression, of discrimination that I think many of us are deeply concerned about and is frankly, you know, a new poison (laughs) in a whole new bottle. Uh, I couldn't agree more. That seems different, except that it's all targeted in places like Fulton County, Georgia, and other counties in America that are uh, that have large black populations. So in that way, what's old is new again, but what's new is old again. That's exactly right. I mean, we see the targeting of, of black communities uh, in particular in acute forms and uh, black communities in the South that have been organizing and rising. The South has been rising quite powerfully in their election presence and in their mobilization efforts. And so there's no wonder that when we see the moving of polling sites or we see the elimination of drop boxes and, you know, most famously the prohibition to provide basic sustenance like food and water as people sit on disproportionately long lines in order to cast a ballot, all of those are meant to target and deter Black and Brown and Asian voters and, and Indigenous voters from casting the, the their ballot and exercising the fundamental right to vote. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned authoritarianism. You know, to many of us, there's a lot of this stuff that feels foreign, that feels un-American, right? And we can debate about whether, how, whether or how un-American that is. But, you know, you worked in Ghana on a Fulbright earlier in your career, studying electoral law and democracy there. How does that perspective play into how you view what's happening to us right now? You know, it's great that you make that comparison. Uh, the work that I did in Ghana was was precisely to solve the, the concern that we're facing right now. In Ghana, there was a law that permitted people who were incarcerated to vote, uh, very unlike what we have here in the United States, where we have a disproportionate number of black and brown people who are imprisoned and who are therefore disenfranchised. In Ghana, technically, uh, there there was a Supreme Court case in that country that enabled people who were incarcerated to vote, but they the the electoral administration wasn't following the order. Quite similar to uh, Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court said. Uh, you know, separate but equal is not constitutional. We must integrate our schools and states must abide by that. And, you know, we saw that there was deep resistance, massive resistance, and uh, and schools did not abide by the Supreme Court's order until it issued Brown II and, and forced local jurisdictions to adhere. So my research there was to compel and to look at what the obstacles were to following that Supreme Court precedent. What is deeply concerning here, and this leads to an area that may seem unrelated but isn't, is what you see in connection with reproductive rights and the cases coming out of Texas and and, and other states, but particularly Texas, where you have the ability of states to enable private citizens and others uh, to sue abortion providers and the Fifth Circuit 
sort of, you know, re- rejecting the Supreme Court's uh, instruction to revisit these issues. We, we're actually seeing a, a, a direct denial of the authority of the Supreme Court occurring by another court, not even by an administrative agency. And so that is very, very, very concerning and and something that must be stamped out quite immediately if the court is going to retain its authority in the same way that it did in connection with Brown, it must do so here. And the connection to voting rights is that, you know, if, if this court, which it's poised to do in a number of cases, gerrymandering case that's before the court, right now uh, that we're litigating out of Alabama, along with the ACLU, if the court does not reinforce its authority to force lower courts to follow its edicts, we will have election subversion that's been invited by this very court. Uh, there, There will be no way to restrain that. And that is why it's so important when you see a breakdown in the structure of of authority and um compliance that the court step in and reassert its authority in in that regard when it's on the right side of the of the law of course so i am looking at this quite carefully i'm i'm hoping that we maintain our position as a a democracy that respects the rule of law so our eyes are peeled and we're we're i'm deeply concerned about about where this country is headed yeah it's it's so terrifying because that problem of if we let abortion rights in Texas, for example, fall prey to bounty hunters, we can let any law, any constitutional guarantee fall prey to bounty hunters. And in fact, the voter intimidation laws that are being passed right now have a lot to do with that, empowering poll workers and other folks to scare people out of the vote, much in the same way that the bounty hunters in Texas are going to scare people out of abortion. So that's why the breakdown of the rule of law coming from the Supreme Court is so terrifying, because nobody's safe. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The moment that it interferes with elections you know, as we say, as the Supreme Court itself has said, the right to vote is preservative of all rights. The court said that in uh, Yick Woe versus Hopkins in 1886, and it is as true today as it was then. And by undermining the right to vote, every other right that we hold dear, that we cherish, that we rely upon to, to live out our citizenship in this country is in peril. So when you were talking about Ghana, you weaved an incredible number of threads together. One of them is felony disenfranchisement, right? The fact that we here in America punish people uh, who have been adjudicated guilty of felonies by taking their right to vote. Um, Can you tell us more about your efforts to stem that tide and why it sort of has a multiplicative effect on communities of color? Because first, we incarcerate them at unforeseen levels, and then we take their right to vote so they can't change the laws that got them incarcerated in the first place. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that felon disenfranchisement is one of the most um, pernicious ways to, again, keep black and brown people out of our democracy, to shut those voices out of our democracy, not only through the deliberate and direct denial of the vote to persons who are incarcerated, but also because it produces what's been called a community contagion, where you live in a community where such a significant number of people are disenfranchised that 
it it lessens one just the example of 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 participation, uh, but also the enthusiasm for it, and it creates you know sort of a shame around the fact that you know people may not be able to exercise their right to vote because they have this badge of dishonor, even if they have been released from incarceration and are living among every other member of society, paying taxes, trying to rehabilitate themselves, but nonetheless carry this penalty that locks them out of the democracy that they exist within. It was an issue that I became involved in over 20 years ago. It is something that at the time was considered quite radical and renegade. It was thought that perhaps you could argue that someone on probation or parole should have the right to vote, but certainly not those who are behind bars. And I felt it was incredibly important to to push the envelope on that and to show that even if you are incarcerated and we can set aside the discrimination that produces a disproportionate number of people of color who are incarcerated, but even if, if you uh, uh, just examine who's behind bars and what our penal system is intended to do. Denying the right to vote does nothing to serve those purposes other than punishment. And ultimately it disserves our democracy by excising a significant number of people from it. And those people who signal most most directly how our democracy is failing them, right? We want to hear from people who somehow thought that abiding by the law was not a choice they could make. We want to know what it is that we're missing as a society that would lead to criminality. And we should hear from those individuals uh, rather than shut them out of public discourse. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, even one person disenfranchised is too much. But let's be clear, in states like Florida and Georgia, these are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, people who have influence over the outcome of elections. And I think the people who are putting them behind bars in the first place know that. That's absolutely right. You know, we have two states, Maine and Vermont, where people who are incarcerated, in fact, can vote. But if you look at the demographics of those states, those are not states where you have a significant number of people of color. I'm, I'm pleased to say that we're seeing much more receptivity to this issue more and more across the country. And Florida is a great example uh, in some ways, right, <laughs> where uh, Amendment 4 was passed by a supermajority of Florida vo- voters who understood that people returning from uh, prison should be able to uh, be integrated into society immediately and participate in elections. But again, uh, unfortunately, the 11th Circuit did not uh, honor the wishes of a supermajority of Florida voters and Amendment 4 is not uh, producing uh, the result that it was intended. And, and we're still fighting that battle in Florida. But I am encouraged by the fact that public opinion seems to be changing significantly on this, that people are becoming more aware of this injustice and willing to speak out and willing to even legislate uh, uh, if they can through referenda to change to change the circumstance. Oh, Florida. Uh, So uh, (laughs) speaking of that state and every other one across the country, let's home in on redistricting now. So now that we have the 2020 census data, every state in the country is redrawing maps for everything from school board to Congress. Um, I'm actually lucky enough to be chipping in on a redistricting case in South Carolina with your LDF colleagues, and it has been eye-opening. What is the state of play right now? 
Well, we are deep in the throes of redistricting right now. Um, as, as you mentioned, redistricting comes uh, every 10 years when the census numbers are released and we need to rebalance the populations in electoral districts across the country. And that happens at every level from Congress to school districts. And it is really um, the process that I think is you know, most in the shadows in some ways in terms of how power is allocated in this country. But thankfully, due to the work of excellent civil rights organizations that are on the ground educating communities about what redistricting is all about, we are seeing much more visibility and engagement in this process. We're seeing communities come out with their own maps, their own proposals for how populations and power should be allocated. It is something that every every person in every community should be aware of and should uh, try to participate in if they can. But what we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, again, due to the Supreme Court's decision in 2019 and in Rucho versus Common Cause, there's no limit that the Supreme Court can enforce uh, concerning the degree of partisanship that can influence the redistricting process. And that leads to a significant uh, amount of manipulation of different populations, different vulnerable populations, all in the name of partisanship. And that can be used as a cover for racial gerrymandering. That can be used for a cover to engage in all sorts of uh, discriminatory practices. And, and that's the rub of what we're getting at in some of these cases. And so the redistricting process is as integral to uh, our democracy and to equality in elections as the right to vote. You know, what's so galling about the Rucho partisan gerrymandering case in particular is A, the Supreme Court says partisan gerrymandering is too political, as if everything it decides, including around voting rights, isn't political. But also that to the voter, they don't care why they're being disenfranchised. They don't care why they're being drawn out of their district, whether it's partisan or racial or any other reason. It's their right, and it's their right that's being stripped. So I just don't understand this as anything but a dodge from the Supreme Court. It's a complete dodge. And and it, it, what makes it so, such an obvious dodge is that it's a departure from the court's own precedent. Up until 2019, the court said repeatedly, that partisan gerrymandering is a matter that the Supreme Court can take up, that it can uh, judge. But it later decided, actually, it's too political, we can't get involved. And that was a a, a, a U-turn, um, an about-face of uh, from what the court had said for decades. And it really has left so many voters and communities vulnerable to manipulation, vulnerable to becoming a perpetual outsider class. And I am hopeful that on the state level, uh, we can pass voting rights acts that can prohibit this type of partisan gerrymandering and eventually have federal legislation that can prohibit partisan gerrymandering. Because without that, the politicization of the redistricting process is only going to get worse and only going to uh, continue to manipulate the allocation of power in ways that make people of color a permanent underclass. Yeah, I think it's so important to remind people that 
federal courts and federal legislation isn't the only way to skin this cat. They can get involved at the state and local level, especially because, you know, when folks talk about gerrymandering, their minds typically turn straight to the U.S. Congress, and that's super important. But gerrymandering infects state legislatures too, and it helps determine, like you said, school boards and other local bodies. How do we get people to actually pay attention and get local on these issues? We have to do just what you said. We have to we have to literally draw the line and connect the dots to local power and authority and the redistricting process. There's a way that democracy becomes alive when you think about redistricting and think about how you aggregate votes and aggregate interests and how you enable those interests and votes to yield a result because you have put them together in a district. So I think there's just a a, a translation that needs to happen for many to show that this is where the action is and that every aspect of your life is in some way constrained. So you mentioned solutions at the state and federal level. Uh, Where do those stand now? What needs to be done before, let's say, the elections in 2022? Well, the elections are are upon us uh, because, as we know, primary elections are beginning and those are uh, very consequential as well. But it's never too late to pass federal legislation, regardless of, you know, whether it will affect the most immediate elections or not. Federal legislation to protect the right to vote is essential. It's needed you know, that could take us down a whole different road. But I'm I'm glad that you also agree that we should not only be looking uh, to federal government, to Congress for a solution, that there are, there's ample opportunity for states and, and localities to enact more protective legislation uh, for the right to vote. And there may be an opportunity to get some of the reforms that that we were pressing for as a civil rights community through other legislation, through appropriations, by amending uh, the Electoral Count Act. There are some possibilities that are still in play. Uh, and I think at, at bottom, the issue is to remain committed to ultimately getting all of those protections, even if they have to be gotten piecemeal. So. We've touched on the fact that voting rights isn't just voting rights, right? It's not distinct from racial justice, from economic justice, from criminal justice. You know, people getting targeted by the police leads to criminalization, leads to family separation, leads to job loss, leads to losing the right to vote. It's a pretty vicious cycle. How do we address these problems holistically without getting overwhelmed? You know, how do we maintain hope? Well, you maintain hope because... Whenever there is a breakdown, there is an opening, right? That's that's how I have, have tried to look at this particular moment. But when there is that spiraling, it allows us to think about not just what's happening in the moment that is not serving us well, but what was wrong. <laughs> it's not as if we were all satisfied with the status quo before right, this moment. Right. And so I think it unlocks your imagination to say, how did we get here? What enabled, you know, what frailties in our laws and our systems and our policies enabled this spiraling to happen? And what do we need to put in place that will propel us even beyond where we were before? When you look at young people across 
the country who are talking about issues of climate change, who are talking about issues of gun violence, and who understand how deeply affected their futures are by the poor choices of adults today. It gives me a lot of hope that we have a new generation of individuals who are willing to think well beyond what many people settled for and were satisfied with before this moment. So I'm I'm encouraged and I am hopeful. I know that the fight won't be easy. I know that there will certainly be some casualties and difficult moments, but out of out of that cauldron, I am quite certain that we will have a much stronger democracy that has been forged. Amen. So I think we can end there. Janae, it's been amazing having you on. Uh, especially at this moment of transition for both you and I think the country. So uh, we really appreciate having you and have a great one. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Sadly, today was my last episode with you. I hope you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have. Uh, Next week, we'll kick it to Lizzie Watson, a staff attorney from our Reproductive Freedom Project. Until next week, be well and do good.